This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello and good morning. You're listening to The Morning Run. It's time now for the SM Show. This is, of course, the show where we rant about what's working and what's not in stocks and markets. I'm Melissa Idris and I've got Julian Ng here with me. And our guest this week, I'd like to welcome Monim Salam, President and Fund Manager of Saturna Syndrome Berhad, which is Saturna Capital's wholly owned Malaysian subsidiary. Welcome to the show, Monim. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Right. So, Jules, over to you. We're going to be talking about investing themes for next year. So as we wrap up the year, kind of thinking about how to um, proceed with next year, uh, we want to kind of tap your mind, Munim, about where you see next year in terms of the investment landscape. That's right. Uh, so we have a background of uh, the S&P 500 right now uh, flirting with all-time highs. Uh, there is fund flows and currency turmoil in a great part of this side of the world. And of course, interest rates are going up in the United States. So given this background, where do you think uh, money would go in 2017? So I think you have to kind of back this up and really think about is, is that what's really happening on the global environment. And, and you can never segregate politics with economics when you're talking about the stock market. And I think one of the themes of 2016, which I think will run into 2017, was the unexpected nature of election results. So you had Brexit earlier this year, which caused everything to go into turmoil. People thought that was a one-off. Then you had the Trump election. Nobody expected that to happen. Um, there's a couple of things that are happening next year also in Europe that we have to keep an eye on. You know, it had the Italian uh, Italian vote would have just happened, I think, since uh, we, we have this conversation. But the French elections are happening. And then the 100 days for the Trump presidency will be there as well. This is causing global markets to go into almost like a panic, if you, if you want to call it. There's an unsettled unsettlement because the markets don't like uncertainty. And that's really what we have. We don't know what's going to happen. And typically when that happens is you have basically a risk-off attitude where people take their money off of risky assets and put them into conservative. Unfortunately, we're living in a, in a country which is part of the risk on assets, which is Malaysia or the region, that type of thing. So that's why I think that fundamentally next year, um, you're going to see more of the same of what happened towards the latter end of uh, 2016, which is the markets will be in gyration in the region, including Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And the currency, unfortunately, I think probably has a little bit more weakness to go before it can stabilize and then strengthen from there. Do you see Trump as a kind of positive force before, uh, because since he took over, he's talked about fiscal expansion in the United States and uh, the market reacted very well with that. Uh, I'm just wondering whether this would continue into 2017. So one thing to keep in mind, you know, is the market is very agnostic. It doesn't care about anything but the actual earnings, the, how the companies are doing, that type of thing. So on the one hand, you have Mr. Trump, who's a businessman who knows about taxes, trade, and that type of thing. And that's what the market's reacting to. But again, as I said, they're agnostic. So they're not taking into consideration the immigration policies and already you know, policies mm-hmm. that they implement. Those things, I mean, it's great to make money, but I can't even enjoy it if I'm sitting in jail or in a prison. Camp. So, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I don't know what to do. It's like, you know. Well, I have to be honest, though. I mean, you know, the, the rally, uh, the, the bump that we saw, the Trump bump that we saw was essentially just based on the things that he said, right? So, you know, Trump, the candidate and Trump, the president-elect may not be Trump, the president, the same guy as a President Trump in the White House. So we have to wait till inauguration, I yeah, say. Well, I mean, so there's a little thing. So I think what what people were fearing, if you remember the, what exactly happened in the market as the election results were coming out and then what happened the day after, people were really relying upon what exactly Trump said in the actual like acceptance word speech. Word for word, Word right? for word, yeah. literally. So if he said, you know, there was conciliatory, um, you know, we got to come together as a nation, 
all those things that he wasn't saying before, that actually had – there was a sigh of relief in the market. Then when he started talking about what he's going to spend money on, infrastructure, you know, building a great wall with a beautiful door and it's going to be the best door in the world. You know? <laughs> you know, that's, then Mark is like, yeah, we can afford uh, to spend money now because we're going to have a beautiful door yeah. to the United States. Yeah, so. but I, I guess it boils down to really doing the work. And uh, the spotlight is on the Federal Reserve. And of course, they have indicated and the market is betting on a rise in the U.S. interest rates as well. Um, apart from those very short-term thinking about where interest rates will go, I think from a long-term perspective, what would be your forecast, let's say, over the next two years as to how many basis points or how many percentage points will U.S. interest rates go up? Because that's relevant to us, right? And that mm. would signify a trigger a lot of funds of movement. Absolutely. So, I mean, I don't think I have a kind of exact number in mind. I think that the Fed never acts, uh, you know, if you look at more long-term from the Fed, it's never a one-off move. It's always a direction that they're looking at. And so I think now the direction has tilted from a negative to a neutral now to a positive. So I think that there will, there will be a positive increase in rates over the next one or two years. Mm. Uh, go ahead. Right. Sorry, Moni, but just to interrupt you, you know, I mean, we started the year with expectations of four mm. rate hikes, right? And we're ending the year. We haven't seen one yet, but we're, we're ending the year with one rate hike. And, you know, the Fed can change throughout the year. So Absolutely. I guess, I guess you know, expectations of what the Fed could do at the start of the year won't be the same. Absolutely. And that's why it's kind of really difficult. It's almost like a crapshoot to figure out exactly what the Fed's going to do. And because you really have to know what's happening in the world. Um, and that's, that's not, not, not always the case. However, what I see is the Fed increasing rates is actually a positive sign not only for the U.S., but also for emerging market countries. Because the supplier for all of the goods that the U.S. spends after they make all the money mm. is coming from, from places like Malaysia and that type of thing. So on the one hand, you have uh, the, 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 the money that's flowing out of the, of, of, of the market here in Malaysia and other places. On the other side is that the, the, uh, you know, the currency is cheaper. That means they can sell to the U.S. cheaper. So there, there's kind of a flip of, of positives and negatives. So over the long run, I think it will be very positive for, for Malaysia. Yeah, this is like the you know uh, the U.S. being the boat that floats everybody else uh, in the world because they have a recovering economy and a rising interest rate scenario would be a reflection of that improving economy um, in the United States. And I guess uh, the question is, how does this affect uh, something as big as China? Because China used to be the factory of the world. Are they going to benefit from a U.S. recovery? And is that a, a theme that you're looking at? I think that uh, China will definitely benefit now. A lot of things that are happening now is all towards automation. Um, and so what, what China has, has been able to do successfully is move over from the kind of like the human production part of it into automation and, and really going into manufacturing 2.0. And I think that's what's going to help them. Uh, I think the, the, the manufacturing from the human skills level will move further into Vietnam and other maybe ASEAN countries um, that are there. Now, China has already, if you notice over the past you know, a month or so, has already begun to weaken the yuan. And that's in anticipation of what's happening with, 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 with federal interest rates. Um, they're trying to do this on purpose to get it ready for uh, you know, having that ability to be able to sell to the U.S. on a much cheaper basis. So do you segregate um, portfolio effects of a weaker yuan and all these currencies uh, that are under a lot of attack right now in this region – and uh, the earnings aspects of these stocks. Uh, and, uh, how do you manage your portfolio based on those kind of movements? So one, one thing they have to, I have to clarify is very, very important that I kind of tell people is that, look, if you are a Malaysian citizen and you're, all your money's in Malaysia and you're never even thinking about doing anything but Malaysia, 
the last thing you should be worrying about is what's happening to the currency because it doesn't matter to you. Currency only matters on a relative basis. For example, if I had my son who was studying in the U.S. and I was earning and measuring it, mm. guess what? It just became 33% more expensive over the last two years. Yeah. So those are the people that I have to worry about exactly what happens to the ringgit. Um, and then also portfolio managers that are managing on a global level, those type of things. So what we try to do is we don't try to look at currency from a, from a perspective of what it's going to do next year or the year after. We look at solid fundamental companies that, you know, in any environment, yes, they might have a one-year weakness if the currency appreciates or depreciates, depending on what kind of company it is. But overall, we're looking for strong management. We're looking for, you know, solid earnings growth. There's demographics that are they're driving this industry or this company to new and better heights. Any particular geographic area that you're looking at for this? So there's a couple of things, right? So you want to look at those areas, regions or countries that are, are weakening their currencies. You're going to look, you, want, you, want, you don't want to look at local companies. You want to look at exporting companies. Why are they low, uh, uh, making the currency weaker? Because the economy is suffering, mm. right? So then you don't want to buy local companies because nobody's going to buy anything. But the exporters, they're going to actually have a margin expansion because of the currency translation. So if you look at Japan or in Europe, you actually want to buy companies that are export-driven. Right. So the reason I ask is because, you know, you mentioned if you're looking at good companies in Europe, yeah. how do you factor in that political risk, which you mentioned earlier in yeah. the show, right? Yeah, so, and that's also, really yeah, whether the breakup of the EU is going to be, be a black swan. Yeah, sure. Um, so in, in our case, you know, uh, um, it's really important to realize – is that over time, um, the market uh, tends to adjust itself. So you're going to have these things. And what we try to always think about and do is any kind of you know, undue or unnecessary selling, panic selling that happens is more of a buying opportunity over the long run. Mm-hmm. Right now, you don't want to go too long term because in the long term we're all dead. So that doesn't. You know, <laughs> five years, you know. I, I, I would disagree with that, but uh, that's that's subject for another show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I know I know that there are short term considerations in portfolio movements, sure. and I just want to go back to your idea about uh, if you are in looking at it from a point of view of a Malaysian um, managing his portfolio from a ringgit um, viewpoint. And I must say that uh, looking at the returns of the bursa for the last five years, I mean our market has returned tremendously. But in one year, that has been wiped out uh, from a US dollar viewpoint, uh, you know, 20, 30 or more percent. Uh, And if I look at the returns of the S&P 500, that has been phenomenal as well. So there there must be something, something has to be said about really pushing investments outwards and uh, really abandoning that um, mantra that Malaysia is best, right? Because there's, there's so much out there. Sure. And, and I wouldn't say Malaysia is best. The idea being that I don't think that in the long run um, you should be investing in U.S. dollar for U.S. dollar, say, or euro or yen. What I'm basically saying is, look, you know, we use, for example, an Apple iPhone or Samsung every single day of our lives. We know it's a good product, right? And yet if you're only restricted to the Malaysian market, you can never buy, own that company. And so you want to go global because you want to own the brands that you on an everyday basis use. And that's why you would want to basically have a portfolio that takes advantage of those global trends that are happening in the world. Now, the currency, yes, you would have done you know, great and it would have helped you. In fact, you know, five years ago, hindsight's always twenty twenty. But if you would have invested there, not only would you have made money on the U.S. dollar, but the market as well. It's like a double kind of gain. Um, but you know what's going to happen over the next five years? Who knows? But really, you want to be invested in those companies that you feel mm. um, everybody's using, everybody likes. There's there's some demographics going on, and that's why you want to look at a global portfolio versus a Malaysian portfolio. Munim Salam, President and Fund Manager of Saturna Syndrome Berhad, is on the SNM show this morning. We'll be back with more, so stay tuned on BFM eighty nine point nine. 
Good morning. You're listening to the SM Show, where we rant about what's working in markets and what's not. As we wrap up the year, we're taking a look at investing themes for 2017. And uh, here to share his thoughts is Monim Salam, President and Fund Manager of Saturnus and Um So, Monim, we were talking a little bit of looking at investing globally versus a country home, a home country bias. Now, um, that's something I know Jules has, uh, has a lot of thoughts on, but especially in a year where we've seen so much happen on the global stage. Is there something to be said about venturing globally and kind of exposing your portfolio to that kind of risk? Um, Absolutely. And one thing to keep in mind as a caveat is you have to know what you're doing. Um, You know, there is easily you can kind of get caught up in the hype. And typically what happens to investors is rather than buying low and selling high, they end up selling, you know, uh, slow and buying high. And so you have to kind of understand um, what you're doing. And if you don't do it, then because it's not a home country uh, situation, you might want to look at either professional management or ETFs or something along those lines that, that would actually be able to benefit from any rise in the market. Yeah, so we were talking about how phenomenal the returns of the S&P 500 has been over the five, last five, six, seven years. Um, and one of the points that frequently crop up is whether the market is expensive or not. What are your views on global valuations right now for stocks? So, I mean, you know, the valuations always, again, I, I, you can look at it both ways. I mean, half glass full, half glass empty, you know, those type of things. The one thing to keep in mind is that in, in an in environment where interest rates are negative, right? Now, keep in mind, I, I can't remember when it was, maybe about a couple of months ago, there were two corporate bond offerings that happened in Europe at a negative interest rate, meaning that they, somebody was paying them to borrow money. Right. That's, that's unheard of, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So in that type of environment, we, there is what's called a search for yield. And so investors that are looking for, for those yield, pension funds, those things, where are they going to go? And in that type of environment, it's always better to have dividend-paying stocks and because you, at least you get that yield of the 2% or the 3% or, or something along those lines. So, so what I would say is that growth still is not where it's at. I think you still you need to be able to capture that, that from the value companies. However, over the next 2017, I think that will begin to shift. And what might not happen in 17, might happen in 18, but that, that, that cycle will come. It is usually a five, six-year cycle where grow, growth outweighs value and value outweighs growth. The problem is you can never time it, mm. so might as well be in both and then kind of readjust as, as, you, as you move along. So I think one of the comments that are coming from market uh, observers as well is the fact that right now bond investors are either thinking about capital gains or capital losses, and uh, the equity investors are thinking about yield, right? Uh, so we are in this very bizarre situation. Yeah. Um, is there something that's concerning about this uh, very bizarre situation? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I mean traditionally, uh, you know, bond investors – um, never worried about capital loss. It was always more about, you know, I, I put my money in, I take my money out. And to be honest with you, you know, if you bought a bond and you held it till maturity, you are going to make money. It's only when you begin to trade that uh, as an investor that you have that idea of the loss. Again, then it goes back to the, this, this idea that, you know, the investor will always sell or, or sell low and buy high. Um, and the same thing will happen in the bond market. So again, um, it's, if you're going to do it, buy bonds for income purposes, then do it for that purpose. Buy it, hold it till maturity, and in the end, you will make money. There is an opportunity cost, which is what fund managers are looking at. But as an individual investor, if you're buying a bond for a certain yield and you like that yield, there's no problem in holding it to maturity unless uh, as long as the company that you're, you're investing in or you're giving that bond to 
is is not going to go away. That doesn't work from a portfolio perspective because a portfolio or a fund holds a whole range of bonds. And uh, if we look at the performance of funds, bond funds, uh, they have suffered, uh, kind of suffered over the last uh, few months or so. Um, and I, w- I just want to relate this question to uh, the idea of what a fixed income investor should do uh, because they want income uh, they, and they are not willing to stomach the kind of risk that you can get from the volatility of equity. So uh, there is this real dilemma that the fixed income investor is in right now. Yeah, and that's true. And so if you're, and then, and you have to, uh, you have have to differentiate between a retail and an institutional. On the retail side, if you bought a bond fund that even on, on the NAV side is down for the year, again, you want to look at it and say, you know, go back to the fundamentals. Who's the fund manager? And, you know, what is, what is the fund owned holding? And, and what is the yield? And as long as you're comfortable with those, those three aspects, there might be more, but as long as you're comfortable with those three aspects, I think it's a buy and hold strategy. It's not, you know, let the fund manager kind of worry about, um, you know, what what he needs to buy, he needs to sell, she needs to buy, she needs to sell. But at the end of the day, for a retail investor, it's more about, look, I'm looking for a certain yield. I want to be conservative. And, you know, there will be fluctuations. So the NAV might go up and down, but I'm not worried because I was never planning on taking the money out also. So, Monim, you're a fund manager. So then what will you be looking at when you're adjusting this? So if a retail investor would trust you to manage this, and what would you, what data points will you be watching then? So, I mean, for us, fundamentally, we're more buy and hold than we are traders. So when we buy something, we hold them for five, six years, if not longer. Um, luckily, we're not bond managers, so that doesn't, that, that doesn't uh, do that. But we do have Sukuk portfolios that we manage. Um, but those have kind of like an alternative, um, although they, they, they are very similar to fixed income, they do, it, it, it can be considered mm-hmm. an alternative asset class. So it doesn't have the same characteristics as the bonds. In the Sukuk side, we, I, I can probably say that we are looking for that better yield, but it, it's probably a better idea for us to be able to let a, a existing Sukuk mature and then roll over into a higher yielding one if interest rates are going up. I just want to go back to valuations, and I'm wondering your thoughts about whether this kind of valuation methods work because we have seen very expensive stocks go higher, and uh, we have also seen some very cheap stocks remain cheap. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it, the the idea here is let time work on your side. So if you have a fundamental belief that you know we don't, I don't want to buy expensive stocks that eventually those stocks, whether it be this year, next month, or whatever it is, will eventually come down, and it'll be at a, a price that's reasonable to you. Now, ch- cheap is very relative, right? So um, it's one of those things where, you know, I might look at, if, just give an example of shoes, you know, I might look at some some shoes and say, wow, those are the most expensive things I've seen, and somebody else will look at them and say, wow, that's a f- 20% <laughs> off, I want to buy these things. Did they have the most expensive shoe from Adidas or Nike? Yeah, no, in? Nike self-lacing shoes there going go. for 700-something, so right. that could be relatively cheap for some people yes. or a bargain for a some bargain people for or it could be terribly expensive for others that's right yeah. so the same thing happens in the market as well that when I look at it and say wow I'm never going to pay 700 times earnings for this company for sneakers or, it's for sneakers. <laughs> or I might say wow you know because this company is going so fast I'm willing to pay that much for it right. and so that's why you know you whatever belief you have you have to kind of stick to it and when you start switching from one belief to another that's when you mess up. So if you go, if you're a fundamental mm-hmm. value investor and you try to dabble in the fact that, oh, this is a growth company and I'm going to invest there, you're most likely not, you're going to mess up. And the very, vice versa as well. Because at the end of the day, value is also relative also. I can find a cheap company and buy it, but guess what? It was, it was cheap for a reason. It wasn't going to be around next year, <laughs> right? So you have to kind of, kind of play that as well and say it's a value because 
the market is mispricing this this equity. So under this umbrella of uh, the discussion of valuation, would tech be one of those themes that you're looking at? Because many people are saying that uh, tech valuations are extremely frothy at the moment. Um, tech valuations, when you look at it from from a from a pre-IPO perspective, you talk about unicorns and venture capital, private equity. Uh, I, I you could you can say that they are very very expensive. On the IPO side, traditionally we have a philosophy: never buy an IPO until after three years. And the reason wow. is because you can never. First of all, you don't know what the price is going to be uh, on on the open. That's one thing. The second thing is management. Public companies are differently managed than the private companies are. Management takes a while before it figures out. Oh, this is what I need to disclose, and those a lot of times they mess up. And then within the first three years, those companies that never made money or people thought the, it was a fad, they usually end up going away. So you kind of want to wait, let the dust settle. And be able to then trade from there. So when you look at technology from a from from from, from a wider perspective of non-IPO, there's a lot of value there. Look, there's a, there's we talked about the techn- technological revolution that was happening. It started off with you know with with computers, then went to laptops, then I, cell phones. One thing that people are I don't say missing, but they're actually kind of not paying attention to is what's called the Internet of Things (IoT). Mm-hmm. Internet of Things is really fundamental. Will change everything that we do on a fundamental level, and technology is behind that. It's a semiconductor company. That will be the brains behind your 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 car your car door or or your car or your house or that type of thing. That's where we would be looking because the valuations are a lot cheaper from that perspective. Okay, the other theme that uh, also want to tap your um, brains on uh, is the idea of emerging markets versus developed markets. Where do you stand on this spectrum? Um, if you can stomach the risk of the emerging markets, I think they're they're in the long run they are a very good investment, and I do feel that actually they're better investments than than developed markets. However, not everybody can do that. So mm-hmm. living you know staying in Malaysia, I would probably say you know you have to have a diversified portfolio uh, of having both uh, risk diversification on currency, on ge- geography, and on on the type of companies that are. If I had to kind of let's put it this way, for my son who's two years old and I'm saving for his college, emerging markets is the way to go. If my son is 15 years old and is two years away from college, probably developed markets is better. Munim, unfortunately, we've run out of time. That's all the time we have today. You've been listening to the SNM show. We've been talking about uh, investment themes for 2017. If you've missed any part of this, you can download the podcast at bfm.my. Munim Salam, thank you for being on the show today. He's the president and fund manager of Saturna Syndrome Berhad, which is the subsidiary of Saturna Capital. Thank you so much for having me here. We've got the news bulletin coming up at 10 o'clock, so stay tuned for that. I'm Melissa Idris with Julian Ng for BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.